Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. This is episode 84, and I'm your host, Chris Sands. Uh, Real quick, just some housekeeping type things to get out of the way first. Uh, everyone should go and get their tickets to the Maryland Craft Beer Festival that takes place on May 12th as soon as possible because it always does sell out and they will not be selling tickets day of. Um, and I think it's Maryland. Do you know the URL for that? Maryland Craft. Uh, if you just look them up on Facebook, the Brewers Association of Maryland, you'll yep. be able to find links right. all over the place. Which is MarylandBeer.org. Yes. Yep. And then... Um, also, if you're listening live tonight, there will be a tapping of a mic'd up mango firkin at Minoxi Brewing. It's their last bit of mic'd up mango that's been aged on um, Sour Patch Kids, which I'm super excited Ooh, to try. Ooh, that sounds delicious. And then also, tomorrow will be the first in the series of Mash Ton Music. Uh, held at Monoxy Brewing that is brought to you by Uncapped and Frederick Playlist. And the voice that you've heard a couple times now, welcoming to the studio once again with a long list of accomplishments and <laughs> things that she has going on is the one, the only, Julie Verratti. Hey guys, how's it going? So you have had a busy year. Uh, yeah, it's got, been slightly busy. <laughs> there's there's just things going on all over the place for you. Mm-hmm. So we'll do a quick rundown. Sure. Um, Denizens is going to have a new location. Yeah, it's or additional, a, an additional location, not, not a new, new one. An added. We're not leaving Silver Spring. Um, you are uh, on the board for the Brewers Association now. Yes, which is the National Trade Organization for Small and Independent Breweries. And as a side note, uh, you're running for lieutenant governor. Yep, just on the side. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess let's talk about those things in that order. Sure. Um, so let's talk. It, you'll be opening a second location, a tasting room, and another production facility. Yes. Or? Yeah. 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 So for those of you who have been to our brewery down in Silver Spring, uh, we have a pretty large tap room. We have a restaurant there as well. And we do obviously we do production. Uh, so we most of the beer we sell we sell on site in our in our tap room location. Uh, operate more like a brew pub, but we do have a pretty robust wholesale side of the business as well. So you'll find our beer mostly in Montgomery County, uh, but other parts of the state as well. Uh, bars and restaurants, and then package stores buy our products. Uh, but we're pretty small, so we don't have a massive footprint really. Uh, we also sell a little bit to um, Northern Virginia and then also uh, DC. Um, and so we actually, the, the building that we're in in Silver Spring, we actually maxed our capacity in 2015, and we had opened our doors in 2014. I don't think we realized, <laughs> which is a good problem to have, yeah. obviously, but it's not a problem you want to consistently keep having because you end up getting a reputation of just being a really small brewery that can't keep yeah. up with demand. And But it's a good problem to have for a little while. For a little while. Or you end up being Green Flash. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to – you definitely – nobody wants to be Green Flash right now. Um, so, yeah, so we we, uh, we had been looking for a second location to be able to make more beer uh, for actually about two years. Um, and so – this uh, there's a really cool development that is um, in the middle. It's they're sort of opening it in phases down in uh, Prince George's County. It's in Riverdale, which for those of you who are not familiar with Riverdale, it's uh, south of College Park but north of Hyattsville. So it's right off of Route One. Um, it's right right in between College Park and Hyattsville. And there's this development there called the River Riverdale Park Station. It's a really, really cool development. They've got, you know, townhomes. They've got community green space. There's a Whole Foods there in the shopping center that's sort of the anchor of it. Uh, there's a Starbucks district. Until you open. Right. <laughs> no, it's it's funny. You know, you're when you're a small business it, it um, and, you, and you're in that growth stage, um, it can be really exciting and also pretty scary. But also... You know, it's funny in our, you know, in the lease documents, we're referred to as one of the anchor tenants, which I just, <laughs> every time I say that out loud, it just sort of freaks me out a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. So we're going to be there with Whole Foods and there's a corporate Gold's Gym and it's a really cool community and uh, development for people living over in that area of town. And it sounds like the absolute perfect place for a brewery. I it, think so. I'm, I'm, we're really excited about it. And so th- this new location is actually 12,000 square feet. That's 
That's quite, it's, it's pretty quite large. A size bump. It's pretty large. Um, we're definitely going to have a tap room there as well. Um, also have a restaurant, so we'll have food, um, and then we are going to be able to produce a lot more beer so that we can start satisfying more of the wholesale demand. So will that be almost the main production facility then? Uh, it'll, the... it'll be the main production facility, at least for our flagship beers, where we okay. need to make a little bit more in volume each time we brew it. We're still going to be doing our, you know, we do a lot of barrel-aged and sour beers and a lot of specialty seasonals. We're going to be doing a lot of those. Uh, remain uh, That production will remain at the Silver Spring location. Okay. Yep. Will it have the same name? Are you able? Because mm-hmm. I don't understand Maryland laws. So that yeah. seems like something for some weird reason. Right. It sounds like it sounds based off the way that the laws are in Maryland. It sounds like what we're doing should not be allowed. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we actually can do it. It's totally legal um, in Maryland. We're actually a class seven, uh, oh, not so a class what, okay. five. So in Maryland, as a class seven, you're actually allowed to have two locations. Um, and as long as you, in the aggregate, do not produce more than 22,500 barrels or do not sell over the counter directly to consumers more than 4,000 barrels, um, you're, you're fine. And even with this new production facility and the increased capacity, we're never going to make at our absolute most. And I'm talking like we're brewing seven days a week, three shifts a day. We would max out at 15,000 barrels yeah, at that so location. We're, we're, we're nowhere we're nowhere close to well, thankfully that. we can thank the committee for allowing <laughs> you to be able to do that since yes. that's what they want I do I do <laughs> want to thank the committee for that no it, it actually is I'm not sure who sponsored the bill I think it actually passed um, not this past session but the session before that it sort of just like snuck in there like no and, one, yeah they definitely did not no, know that was there no though. one was paying attention <laughs> to it I wish I knew who the sponsor of the bill was I would like to thank that person personally. Um, but it's because it's allowing us to, to grow our business. You know, we're going to be hiring at least 25 new people in the first year that we're open um, and adding a lot more jobs after that. And I think it's this is an example that, in a, you know, in Annapolis, if you open up the, the if you remove the barriers for growth for small businesses, um, there is demand, especially in the brewing world. Um, more companies will be created. More companies that exist now are going to grow. You just got to create those economic opportunities. So you, are you able to? You're able to do that under your existing license. You don't have to get a, a secondary one. Well, it's is... all it all gets complicated because <laughs> you know when you make alcohol, you're regulated yeah. on the federal level, the state level, and the local level. Uh, so on the federal level, we're probably going to have to get a second TTB brewer's notice. Okay. Um, but on the state level, it, it operates basically under the same license. Okay. Um, I need to, you know, obviously continue my conversations with the comptroller's office to make sure we're doing it all correctly. Yeah. But there is a mechanism to do it because yeah, I know like, in Pennsylvania you're allowed to have up to five on wow. on one license. Okay, and somehow like, Pennsylvania is not in anarchy. They, <laughs> they still they are able. I don't know to how survive. they're surviving. No, they allow breweries to do a lot of crazy things. I'm surprised there's no riots in the street and you know all that I stuff. Like, and you can sell wine and. Uh, hmm spirits from a brewery as long as they're made in pennsylvania also oh that's i didn't know they had that That, i think that that was new for last year okay so any any alcohol producing uh business can sell other products as long as they're made in pennsylvania as long as they're made in pennsylvania i like that sort of like local focus it's good to support yeah people in the same state yeah Um, so they're not like have a bunch of Boone's Farm or whatever. Some well, <laughs> who drinks Boone's Farm? I don't know. Man. I just that's always anytime <laughs> I hear someone have a punchline for something to do with wine. Right. I don't even know what really Boone's Farm is, but I know you it's probably often, don't want to know. I know it's often a punchline, so I figure yeah. it might be funny if I said it. So in Pennsylvania, for that, do, do they have to get a separate like local license to serve those things, or is it just if you I, have a manufacturing or like? brew pub license you're allowed to just do that i didn't ask for all the details but i think if you have it you're just allowed to wow yeah so yeah because here it's probably more complicated yeah here in maryland if you are a brewery uh the state license allows you to obviously manufacture the beer uh, and allows you to sell directly to consumers your own beer um and then also wholesale your own beer but in uh, if you want to sell wine or spirits, even if you are a class seven, you are a brew pub yeah. by definition, uh, you still have to get the local uh, jurisdiction to give you a, a liquor license. I'll have to find out. Yeah, the the only the only brewery, well, we had Trogues on, but they don't sell anything in their tap room other than their beer. So mm-hmm. I don't know if they would know. But we had Gear House on. Mm-hmm. And like when I first went there, I was surprised because they have a whole wall of taps that's wine. 
and then they make uh, beer cocktails. Wow. So I was like, how are you able to do this? This is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, actually, you know, the industry as a whole is sort of keeping an eyeball on the the uh, the wine tap situation because it's now we're you know you're competing to get taps for your own beer. Oh yeah. And now I've wine heard. wineries are coming in and taking over some of the taps in the bars, so you have fewer beer taps that you can actually try to get. I actually didn't know that was a thing for in bars too. Yeah. I yep. wonder what you would think though that like there's that whole pomp and circumstance of bringing out the bottle yep. and the corking and you do, but that, I will from an efficiency standpoint. Just it's from much like, easier just to pull. <laughs> well, there's that, but also just you know for a cost of goods sold, like you're not wasting the product as much. You have much more control over uh, yeah. pouring exactly five ounces. You know exactly what it is that you're you're taking off the thing. Whereas with a bottle at the end of the night. You know, if you didn't serve that full bottle and you only served three glasses instead of four, it's like sometimes you, you get a big loss on that product and you, yeah. you paid for the whole bottle. So. And I guess, and as a producer, on the producer side of it, mm -hmm. it's a lot cheaper because you're dumping a whole bunch of wine into one vessel right. instead of the cost of a bottle for a whole bunch of different right. ones. Not that I'm promoting that bars and restaurants should be filling up all their taps with it's wine. It's actually, it's a horrible <laughs> idea. No one should do it. No one should do it. Just <laughs> just sell beer. <laughs> So it, are you planning on like replicating a lot of the feel and look mm -hmm. of the current Denizens location or will it be a, a, a I big think, difference? I, I mean, it'll be different in the sense that this is brand new construction. So the building yeah. right now is literally a t cold, dark, empty shell, I guess is the terminology that's used <laughs> as, you know, gravel floors. There's, there's not even like demising walls put up yet. Um, and so... We, we get to build everything from scratch, which was not our experience in the first p location. You know, our location in Silver Spring, the building is what the building was. Yeah. Um, and so we just sort of had to work with that, which kind of lent itself to its own design and sort of ambiance and feel. Um, we also were pretty undercapitalized when we first opened, which is, I think, the case with a lot of businesses. Yeah. Um, and so we just worked with what we had. Um, you know, I'm hopeful we're not going to be undercapitalized for this second location. Um, we've worked pretty hard to... to Put ourselves in a position where we can do this comfortably um, and we uh, you know there's going to be a lot more sort of like artwork on the walls like directly painted on the walls of some of like our can designs and our branding there's obviously going to be like windows to look into the the back of the of the house where you can see the brewery um, and so it's I mean same sort of casualness it's not gonna we still want to make sure that people feel like comfortable just rolling in exactly how they are um, whether you're wearing, you know, sweatpants and a T-shirt or you're yeah. wearing, you know, a suit or, you know, jeans and a sweater or whatever it is. Um, we have a pretty casual sort of approach. We always want to make people feel comfortable, feel welcome, um, no matter where they are in the spectrum of uh, craft beer experience. Uh, and, I, you know, the restaurant's going to, you know, the menu's going to basically stay the same. We'll, we might make a few additional type of items, but we're pretty, we're pretty excited about it. I've always wondered um, places like that that have the windows where you can see everything going on. Mm -hmm. How do the people back there feel? Do they feel like they're at a zoo and they're being observed? It's and... very possible. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they do. I mean, in Silver Spring, we don't have any walls. Like you sit in the bar downstairs in our tap room and literally the brewery is just like right there behind the bar. Yeah. So there's no separation. But we generally don't brew when, your, when we're open. actually open for business down there. Um, I have a feeling that over in uh, Riverdale, it's going to be a little different. Like we'll probably have, um, we'll probably be brewing on some days where we are open. Yeah, because it seems like the description of that location, it seems like you could have like the um, at, be open whenever you wanted to. And you're going to yeah. be, you're, there's going to be enough yep. people in that area. Although Silver Spring is also well, Silver Spring. Well, <laughs> Silver Spring is actually, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting area. I, I really love Silver Spring. It's definitely a lot more bustling than it used to be. Um, but our area of Silver Spring, we're in South Silver Spring. There's not actually a lot of foot traffic during the day. Okay. Um, you know, unfortunately in Montgomery County in general, but especially in Silver Spring, there's not a lot of sort of nine to five office workers. Um, and then with Discovery leaving, you get more people leaving the area. Yeah, I was just going to say that. that yeah, so hopefully it's, that doesn't sit vacant for too long because that is a humongous building. I know. Let, let's hope not. Um, I, I know people are, are working to try to, to replace them. Um, but, you know, there's really no reason to be open for lunch during the day in Silver Springs. We just don't – you can't rationalize it because yeah. you don't have enough foot traffic or visitors. Uh, we are open for lunch on Fridays. It's the one day because we kind of bank on the fact that sometimes people leave early and 
they want to go start drinking yeah. earlier. So that's when we're open for lunch. Or you're, you at least give them an excuse to. Right. Exactly. Up. Exactly. Uh, but we're going to be open for lunch every day at, at Riverdale. Um, so I'm, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, people will probably definitely see folks brewing. Cool. It's, um, I think that, that like those types of, what do they call those kind of planned developments? What do you mean? Where there's like it's like a planned housing. development. Yeah, it's I thought there multi, was some like kind of, like a mixed use, multi use development. I thought there was some fancy name for it too. There probably like, is, but like um, <laughs> it seems to be like where Diamondback is. Mm-hmm. It's very much like a, they're surrounded by those apartments, and then there's mm-hmm. Harris Teeter right there. Right. And so it, it seems like like the absolute perfect place <coughs> for a, a brewer to be located. Also, no, for sure. And I mean, in Silver Spring, we have. Literally within two block radius of the building, there's over 4,000 apartment and condo units. So, you know, happy hour business, you know, late night business, weekend business, we do really well. Um, it's just the lunchtime that doesn't make sense. Yeah. But in Riverdale, it, yes, there's going to be, I mean, there's townhomes. I think they've already pre-sold all of them. There's tons of uh, single family houses, neighborhoods, little pockets of neighborhoods all over that area that people could literally just walk across route one and they're at the, they're at the development. Nice. Uh, so we're, we're excited to, to get new customers and you know, it's, it's six miles away from our current location. Um, which I think from a business standpoint makes sense because we're not going to be eating into our current customers in silver spring yeah. and we're not so far away that folks haven't heard of us. So I'm hopeful that we'll just, you know, bring, bring more people into the, into the family. So basically what you're saying is you're really good at choosing locations. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, t- we'll ask you next year. All right. That's cool. Yeah. I'll let you talk to me in a year. I'll let you know what I actually think about that. <laughs> All right. Before we move on to topic number two from the list of three, let's take a moment to thank Roast House Pub, who has 20 taps that are all beer. No wine on his tap lines. Good job. And because I imagine if you run wine through a tap line once, that's never switching back to anything else. I think you have to make it like a permanent one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that is definitely uh, as as a brewery, I don't think you ever want to see one switching once because no. it's not going to go back. Um, but in addition to his twenty tap lines, there's an amazing menu, monthly uh, beer dinners, five courses which cool. each course is pretty much a meal in of itself. So you really have to plan ahead before a beer dinner and not eat for a day or two. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Um, each course is paired with a, a beer from the brewery that's being focused. And he does an amazing job of complimenting the food and the beer off of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I'm not, I don't, I don't know yet who April's beer dinner is with, but keep an eye open on their Facebook page or on their website uh, so once again, thank you, Roast House Pub. So topic number two, the Brewers Association. Is it just Brewers Association or is Brewers Association of Maryland? I mean, I, not Mar- of America. No, it's, it's just, just Brewers Association. Just Brewers Association. Okay. Um, so you're on the, is it? the board? Is there, it's the board of directors. And you're the chair for, uh, for the, the diversity committee. Yes, and the chair of the diversity committee. I just took that position over in January. Uh, Scott Metzger, who had kicked it off, he's a co-founder and owner of Freetail Brewing out in Texas. Um, he had chaired it for the first year. We were we were up and running, really got us off the ground. Uh, and I'm lucky enough that I was um, asked to step up and be the chair this year. So how long have you been on the board? I just started my uh, term this past February. Okay, that's why I, I thought it was yep. fairly new. So how how do you end up on the the board of the National Brewers Association? You got to run for it. So okay, so you yep. do you you put your throw your you hat throw, into the you throw your hat into the ring. Okay. Um, there's different seats on the board, uh, so they have some reps that are sort of at large, and then you have reps who are representing you know production breweries, and then you have reps that are representing brew pubs, um, and then we have a couple of people from the uh, the Home Brewers Association that are also on there as well, um, and so. Uh, I ran I ran for one of the brew pub seats and I was lucky enough that you know my colleagues across the country to voted voted to elect me to the board cool well, congratulations yeah. thank you and then th- does the rest of the board then vote for assignments on the to chair the committees or yeah how? there's there's an executive committee and they sort of work with the board members to be like all right who wants to chair these different subcommittees or different committees okay um I did. I did notice one of the other brew. One of the other people representing <coughs> brew pubs is one of the coolest and irreverent, irreverent places in the country. Church Brew Works mm-hmm. from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. 
which I, I, I don't remember back when uh, they first opened, but I'm, I'm sure there was a lot of protest <laughs> about turning a Catholic church into a uh, brew pub. It's kind of awesome. <laughs> Have you ever been there? I haven't been there. It's absolutely amazing. The altar is where all the brew equipment is. The oh like they God. still have a lot of the seating. You sit in pews. Oh wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, they have it, the beer's pretty good. The food's good. It's a if you ever find yourself in Pittsburgh, oh, I highly definitely, recommend I'm definitely right. Check it out. out the Church Brew Works. Nice. Um, so as as the what does the diversity i mean obviously diversity but <laughs> what what is what are we your, trying to do yeah. yeah so we uh we actually just came up with sort of our five goals and sort of like mission statement um you know a lot of the first year that we were operating was really just building out and sort of talking about like, like what what is our purpose what are we trying to do um and we've already uh taken some action on things you know we just sent out a press release. We just announced um, that Dr. J, who is this amazing, amazing woman um, from down south, she has a, you know, she's a professor and she literally, her whole, her whole career is talking about diversity. Um, so we hired her as a diversity ambassador. She also knows a lot about beer um, and craft beer is kind of her bailiwick. So it's like the perfect combination. Um, she's going to be in Nashville next week for the Craft Brewers Conference. Um, I will be there as well. Uh, but she, her role is going to be traveling around the country, meeting with state guilds, um, and just sort of talking about how, how do you sort of diversify not only internally but also externally with your customers. I think two big things when I think about diversity in craft beer, um, one is you know taking a look at like where are we right now. We need to do we need to look, do sort of data search on you know where are we demographically. Um, you know because I think. When people think about craft beer, a lot of folks, they just Im immediately imagine, you know, like white men with beards. And obviously, it's not just white men with beards who drink beer. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a sitting example. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but sort of there's like this idea of that's what craft beer is. And, and we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're changing that sort of narrative because it, it's not true. And it creates a, a culture where people don't necessarily feel as welcome. Um, and so I think internally we need to look at how do we um, create a more diverse workforce. And that's up and down sort of the value chain. So everywhere from the manufacturers to the breweries. So, you know, folks like Denizens Brewing Company and then, you know, looking at wholesalers, looking at retailers, and then even behind the manufacturers, the raw material suppliers. How can we as the Brewers Association help create um, programs and tools for people to help diversify their internal workforce? And then the second part, the second th thing that we really need to look at is how are we as an industry going to be looking to diversify our customer base? And that's not, I think, just a, a moral imperative, uh, but also a business imperative. You know, we need to grow our industry. The more and more breweries that open up, um, I, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game if we're constantly growing fans of craft yeah. beer, right? That's um, um, when we had Kevin Blodger on. Oh, I love Kevin. Uh, that guy is fantastic. He is he is one of my favorite people in craft He's on beer. the diversity committee. Yeah. And was, he's so, very active, very smart, and just I love working with him. We started having a really great discussion that Graham killed um, because he <laughs> needed to leave. And Thanks, cut Graham. Us, and cut us short. <laughs> and, and, but it's accurate. And, um, and, and he was – and I I had never um, – <clears throat> thought of it from that angle it i had always thought of it from the angle that people typically mean just like i think you use the word as a moral mm -hmm. uh, thing. moral imperative but, yeah. but um that to grow there's these entire segments mm -hmm. of society that may not necessarily feel welcome right. into the because it, it's a very you know while it's still just a a food product that right. we're enjoying, it's still very much a cultural absolutely. type of activity. No, absolutely. And when he put it into that way where it's like we're kind of, not purposely, but from the outside looking in, excluding entire mm -hmm. segments of a society right. that's really hampering the ability for the industry to grow. Absolutely. But then it also provides an amazing opportunity that you have these huge segments of the of society that you can bring in and show them that 
they're welcome to yeah yeah you're totally right it's funny i just i'll give you an example i i got an email today because you know i'm going to the craft brewers conference next week there's an organization um that's going to be in nashville which is where cbc is going to be take place that sent out an email that was like make sure to stop by and visit us we're doing our uh beard and mustache uh contest and i was like okay (laughs) <laughs> like guys come on like you're t- completely excluding an entire gender like yeah. this just doesn't doesn't seem to make sense from it's it, you know if you have blinders on and you're not thinking about it proactively um people you know we all we all we all do this you yeah, know you I end mean, up you as, sit on as a white male right I, like not purposely but right. i you just you live in your bubble that's your perspective that, yeah you don't yeah. necessarily unless you stop and purposely try to think from other things it's it's not out of malice it's just a way way that that you've grown up and you see things i totally agree with that and i think that you know the reason why i think the diversity committee is important is it's because the the birds association is proactively saying listen we're identifying this as something that we really need to proactively work towards Um, we need to expand our customer base we need to expand the folks that are working in our industry, and we need to do that with force and with purpose. And I think that that is really important because if you're not doing anything with purpose, with you know eagle eye focus on something, it, you don't you don't end up prioritizing it, and things fall to the wayside. And I think this is a really important initiative, and I'm I'm very excited about what we're going to be doing over the next year. And then I, I think from the employee standpoint of it. I, I think it's really helpful and good because it brings in new ideas because yeah. going back just to the, we all tend to live in our mm-hmm. bubble. We live in an mm-hmm. echo chamber of ideas mm-hmm. that we all, you believe and think the same as the people who you surround yourself with. It's just right. how it happened. Like it's human nature. Right. So you tend to have the same way of thinking, but mm-hmm. when you have a diverse workforce, I believe there are plenty of studies that show this, right. that it's, there's a net gain to yep. it, not just from the moral imperative side of it that like... It's good business practice. Yes. It's good business practice for introducing sure. Introducing new ideas is never a bad thing. No, it's Unless definitely... Unless they're horrible ideas. Let, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, you can probably weed out yeah. the bad ideas. Yeah, that's actually one thing that's actually pretty exciting about the diversity committee as well is it is it is in its very nature very diverse as a committee. You know, we have I know that would be a pretty bad look if it was all white men yeah, with right? beards. <laughs> Good <laughs> lord. That would be horrible if that was the whole makeup. Um we do we do have a, a couple of folks who you know who are who are white guys that are on it and <laughs> they are very helpful and contribute a lot to the, to the and discussion. I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. like if you're a white guy you can't possibly <laughs> no, of be course able not. to of course not. Well, you know, white guys are part of our community. Yeah. They are they are part of who we are and we you know this isn't about excluding anybody. This is about being open and welcoming to everybody. It's just adding more seats to the table. And so, you know, we've got women, we've got people of color, we have, you know, folks from the LGBT community, my, myself being that person. Yeah. And so it's um, it, it's all ages, all diverse, and also diverse in terms of business size of who's on the committee. Which is also important. That's important. And then geography as well, like people from all over the country. We have a widespread across the whole country in terms of representation as well. I was happy to see that you commented on the tired hands situation because yeah. that was crazy. Just, yeah, and absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, it's amazing how when people think like, especially when it's not a tone deaf thing. I know <laughs> when, you, when you try to do something is definitely good, right? And then you get berated for it. And it is for those not hate. listening, I mean, for those <laughs> listening that don't know what it is, tired hands. Came um, had a intern was it or was it, it was for like just a, it was like an internship or like an apprenticeship program yeah. to bring to bring in uh, diverse candidates to work in their brewery, and then yep. so instantly as the internet will do, there was <laughs> there were plenty of people pointing out that that was racist, and right? That uh, why can't uh, why don't white people get to apply? Which yeah, I mean <laughs> <laughs> we. Yeah, human beings are interesting creatures. Let's just put it that way. And then I guess another point too, and the um, it's a slightly different look at, it, but like when and actually maybe you can set me am I right or wrong on this? Where and maybe you know when Brew Dog mm-hmm. came out with their um, they they were poking fun at the pink beer thing, mm-hmm. and they 
I can't remember all the details, but they were donating a certain amount of money to. Didn't they make a pink beer? They, I think it may have been pink in color, but it was just punk. It was their punk IPA. Okay. And then they, they named it pink IPA That's for what it was. something. And then they were donating proceeds to something. Okay. And then as the internet does, everyone got offended and attacked it. Okay. I didn't, were they doing it to be like ironic? They they were doing it. I don't know to, the whole story on they it. They were doing it. That, well, they after the backlash, they said they were doing it to make fun of the companies that make pink things too. Okay, so we don't know if they actually were doing that or if that was them being like, oh, I don't know, we were just joking. Yeah, okay. but I mean, right in it though, they were donating money off the bat. For, oh well, for, I don't know. That sounds like they were doing it on purpose then, like as like a yeah, as to a, make fun of it. But and that, I mean, that fits into their culture at least the mm-hmm. persona that they put on to make fun of stuff absolutely you know it's funny i you know as a female you know marketers in general when they think female they think like how do we market our stuff make it pink right exactly make it pink or like any, and it's just like that that's not going to work on me I'm not, I'm not the type of type of woman that like you show me something pink that i'm going to be like sweet uh, let me you, get that for the listeners she is head to toe wearing pink <laughs> Well, if they're watching on Facebook yeah. Live, I don't think they're going to prove you wrong, man. <laughs> don't watch. Just listen. Um, so, well, congratulations on that aspect of Thank the, you. Three, the three pack of uh, discussions. Thank and you. Best of luck for that. Um, and then hopefully someday I'll be able to have Kevin on so we can finish our discussion that Graham killed. And I'm glad he let you get all the way through it this time. <laughs> and. And you should definitely have Kevin back on. People should listen to Kevin all the time. <laughs> I sound like a total fangirl. I kind of am. I think he's great. I kind of am too. He, yeah. he's, he's just an awesome all-around person. Yeah. Um, so then the probably the most important, maybe second, uh, depending on. Everything the, is important. They're all, yeah, they're <laughs> all equally special stars. And, <laughs> right. Um. You're running for lieutenant governor. I am. I'm running for lieutenant governor with Alec Ross, who I believe you had on I last did. week. Yep. So wh- something that slipped my mind to ask him, uh-huh. how did the two of you become paired up? So uh, a lot of folks who are familiar with me through the Brewers Association of Maryland or Denizens um, probably know um, that I'm, I'm pretty politically active. Um, both throughout the state of Maryland as well as in Montgomery County, Maryland, and then on a national level as well, um, advocating for small businesses and especially uh, breweries. So I, uh, with a group of friends of mine, I helped, I'm one of the founding board members of an organization called the Democratic Business Council of Maryland. Uh, And essentially, uh, you know, short story, it's Democrats who are business people. Um, And so uh, we have speakers come in, whether they're folks who are already in elected office or folks who are vying for elected office, they come and speak to our group. Uh, And so um, Alec came and spoke to our group last year and he was, he had already announced he was running, running for governor. And uh, I was really just became a true believer um, when, when he came and spoke, I was like riveted at my seat and at the end had all these questions and he had all these smart answers to the questions I was asking him, and we just really hit it off also just like on a personal level. Um, and then I found out he was a beer guy and how much he <laughs> loved beer, and so we started talking about that. Um, just some guy from Baltimore right. likes beer. Yeah, that's I mean, that's basically <laughs> – that is who he is. You know, he just also happens to be extremely bright yeah. and uh, know a lot about policy and how government works and uh, how the private sector works and all of that. And um, so we had a really good conversation, hit it off created a relationship you know we'd talk on the phone um i would go to some of his events just like as a fan like as a supporter of his yeah. had no idea he was considering me um to, to ask me for to be his lieutenant governor candidate uh and we uh he called me up one day um after you know about six months of us having formed this relationship and was basically like hey so hypothetically what do you do in the next four yeah, years right exactly <laughs> you know hypothetically if i were to maybe ask you <laughs> Would you consider saying yes or whatever? And uh, do you like me? Yes, no, maybe. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> like, do you want to go to the prom? You know, right? It was like a, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a fun conversation. And I, you know, I actually almost said no right away because of all the other things going on. Um, but he's he's very persuasive, and he said, you know, listen, I'm not going to let you say no to me on the phone right away. I want you to hang up with me. I want you to think about it. Um, but I, you know, I think you have the right background. You know, for people who don't know this about me. Um, prior to opening Denizens, um, you know, I was born and raised in Maryland. 
I uh, grew up grew up in Montgomery County. I grew up in Silver Spring. I actually went to Montgomery College for a couple of years, which is a local community college down in Montgomery County. Uh, and from there, I moved away to for undergrad. Um, and right after right after finishing my four year degree, I went right into politics. I actually did a lot of work for the Democratic Party. Um, you know, worked on uh, get out the vote efforts for the presidential campaign uh, back then, which was in two thousand four. Um, I also and then I ran an environmental campaign in New York City for a year. And then from there, moved back to the Boston area, uh, which is where I had gone to undergrad, and um, helped work on protecting same-sex marriage rights in Massachusetts. And I did that, worked on a lot of statewide uh, political campaigns, as well as obviously advocating in the legislature in Boston um, to protect same-sex marriage. And then from there, I moved back down to this area um, and got my law degree. Um, And during law school, I was still politically active. I worked for the Human Rights Campaign as a McLeary Law Fellow. Um, I worked for the National Legal Legal Aid and Defenders Association doing uh, reentry policy and criminal justice reform work. Um, And then I um, went to work for the Small Business Administration uh, on the the federal government. And I was there for about five years. And while I was there, I was tasked with helping to implement the Affordable Care Act. I was the lead policy advisor for the entire agency on how that was implemented. Um, Obviously, this was a, you know, interagency law that needed to be implemented. But um, I was my role was to make sure that the perspective of small businesses was being heard. Um, so if people remember uh, when that law was being implemented, it was kind of slowed down a lot and delayed a lot for small businesses. A lot of the reason for that is me screaming at the rafters at the time. You know, like <laughs> you cannot regulate small businesses the way you regulate Fortune 500 companies. Yeah. It they, just doesn't make sense. They don't sense. have the pocketbooks. That they don't have the pocketbooks. They don't have the resources. You know, at, at Denizen's Brewing Company, uh, my business partner, Emily, she is the HR department, right? Like yeah. there's like you don't have departments of lawyers and CPAs and HR people to like help you implement all these rules and regulations. There has to be. Uh, you know, different treatment based off business size. And uh, and quite frankly, where business is in their life cycle. So a business that's within their first five years that has 25 employees is very different from a business who's in their 20th year that has 25 employees, right? Yeah. Like you have to think about all those things when you're, when you're regulating companies. And so uh, after that, you know, I um, helped found Denizens uh, with my my wife, Emily Bruno, and my brother-in-law, Jeff Ramirez. Uh, We've been open for about four years now. And as we were talking earlier, we're going to be opening a second location, hopefully within the next year. Uh, You know, fingers crossed that everything goes well with permitting and build out and all that. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's that's basically my background. And I've I've been on the, the board of directors for Brewers Association of Maryland. I'm obviously on the BA board now. Um, and I've just been very politically active and uh, in and around Annapolis. And I, I tell all of my brewery colleagues, you know, you should absolutely know all of your state representatives, you know, your delegates, your senators. You should know everybody. You should have a relationship, have a relationship yeah. with your county council members. Know who, if you own a business, you should know who regulates you. And that's just the flat out. That's just like a rule of life if and you're a business right owner. Right now in Maryland more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I've been very politically active in Annapolis. And so I think a combination of my background plus, you know, my political activism in Annapolis specifically, I think, and, and the fact that Alec and I have kind of the same DNA when it comes to thinking about economic policy, thinking about small business advocacy, you know, thinking about education policy, thinking about all those things, public transportation, et cetera. We um we just sort of hit it off, and I think th- I think that's why he asked me, and I my my hope is that I'm helping his ticket and not harming it. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah, that's like your number one job yeah. when you're a lieutenant governor not candidate. To screw you, it up. Don't screw it up. That's your number <laughs> one job. So it, if I remember correctly, the in Maryland, maybe not completely unique, but it is semi unique where like the relationship between the governor and lieutenant governor and how the race mm-hmm. is done where like, cause you're running. How does that work? Well, in a lot of other States, you're not running mates, right? It's right. A, in other States, like for Virginia, for example, you have someone, you want to run for lieutenant governor. You just declare you're doing that okay. and throw your hat in the ring in Maryland. If you're going to be a lieutenant governor candidate, you have to have a governor. There also. has to be a governor who asks you to run with them okay. or a gubernatorial candidate asks you to run with yeah, them. Good. Um, you can't just be like, I'm going to run for LG and that's what I'm going to do. You can't. You'd have to – because when in order to actually officially file your paperwork to be a gubernatorial candidate, you have to be naming a running mate on that paperwork. Okay. 
So that's why everybody picked a running mate. Yeah, and so yeah. if you if you vote for me, you're voting for Alec. If you vote for Alec, you're voting for me. So you definitely want to pick someone yep. that you're in. Yeah. <laughs> vote Julie Verratti. Vote Alec Ross. <laughs> um. So I, I I would assume that you just reiterate everything he feels about for brewery reform. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you guys had a long conversation about that, we don't need to get into yeah. it really. But yeah, there needs to be some reforms for sure. So actually, I mean, I, we can talk about it if you yeah, want. Yeah, we'll just we'll do quick ones because I don't want um, Graham to. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Does Graham have to go? <laughs> yeah, at some point. So we'll we'll try to preemptively end our conversation instead of him cutting us off. <laughs> And <laughs> the so on the specific uh, ideas, would, are you for no limits, or do you think there like is there any is there any logical reason for there being limits for what could be sold through a tap room, or if you can make it and your customers want to buy it, there mm-hmm. should be no limit. I don't think there should be limits. Well, I think just philosophically, I, that's yeah. that's how I feel about business policy in general. You know, if there's a regulation that exists and you can identify specific positive um, results because of that regulation and it outweighs the negatives, then that regulation should exist. Yeah, not just because it helps another business. Correct. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. So in my mind, I can't really identify a reason for what are the what is the positive result of this limit on production on self-distribution, on, um, you know, tap room sales. I just don't, I don't see what the positive benefits yeah. are um, other than, you know, protecting the three-tier system, which, um, yeah, I don't, I just don't, I don't see it. Now for, for franchise law mm-hmm. specifically, do you, do you want it completely gone or from the, I think it's, was BAM's approach of mm-hmm. where it's kind of tiered if you mm-hmm. if you make i think it was 300,000 barrels mm-hmm. under 300,000 barrels franchise law doesn't apply if the brewery produces over 300,000 barrels right, it would then apply. It, the franchise law applies yeah i think that um <coughs> i i agree with bam's approach and here's why uh you know the whole purpose of franchise law which some folks don't know the history of it was it was created as a mechanism to protect the small distributors yeah. in the state, right? It was a policy that was trying to protect small businesses from large businesses, right? Do you know, do you know J.T. Smith? Yes. Yeah, so yep. we, I had him on uh, sometime last year, okay. and he explained that. And that was the yep. first I had no idea that yep. that's why. So it's like the current situation is completely flip-flopped totally and backwards flipped. for what the laws were intended yep. to do. Yep, no, it, it totally flipped. And so um, Sorry were, to cut you off. No, it's okay. <laughs> There were, you know, a lot of these small distributors and then these, like, there were very few breweries that were massive in size. So, say if Budweiser was, you know, had a distribution relationship with a small distributor, if Budweiser could just willy-nilly just roll out of that relationship, that distributor would go out of business. Yeah. Nobody wants that. Nobody, nobody wants small businesses to be yeah. harmed like that. Like, that's horrible. Which, in, in, in right. still a lot of them that right. would happen now. Absolutely. Even if, if, no, it's still, it absolutely, yeah. that, that absolutely exists right now. Um, and so I think it makes sense to make sure there's a cap. Like if you are a massive brewery and if you roll, if you just could like up and leave a relationship with a distributor and you are their entire or most of their portfolio, I, I think it's good that there are protections for yeah. that. There should never be a situation where you can't ever get out yeah. of it. Um, but there, there should be some protections there. I think, you know, the six month or like 180 day, like the ability to like change their behavior or to fix, like if you have a complaint as a brewer and the distributor is not doing what you need them to do to sell your beer, 180 days is kind of a long time for them to be able to rectify the issue. I yeah. think that needs to be shortened, and that, in my in my view, should be shortened regardless of the brewery size. Um, but in terms of having franchise protection, it makes sense when you're talking about Budweiser, Miller, Coors. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. When you're talking about... Um, the small independent breweries of the state who are, you know, we Denizen's made 1,500 barrels last year, yeah. right? Like, yeah, if, I'm yeah. not breaking anybody's portfolio. Yeah, if you leave someone, they're, they're they wouldn't even notice. Yeah. They'd be like, oh, were they here? <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know them. Um, it, but, but I will also say, like, from, you know, we we self distribute, so I run the wholesale side of the company for Denizen's. 
Um, it, it is hard work to do distribution. It's a lot of logistics. It's a lot of, you know, physical labor. It's a lot of planning and, um, you know, it's sales. It's all kinds of things, right? It's customer service. And uh, it, it is a difficult job. That being said, you know, it, it scares me the idea as a small brewer to sign with the distributor knowing that, like, I would not be able to get out of that relationship yeah. without, you know, being completely and totally financially strapped um, now, if you were if you weren't in Montgomery County, would you still be able to self distribute at the the scale that you are? Yeah, you don't. You only have to get like because you go. You have to deliver to fewer places, right? Or do you deliver to the actual end accounts? Oh, no, I'm I deliver, still always no, confused how Montgomery de- County works. We deliver to the actual end accounts. Okay. So when we were first opening, we got a, uh, that law changed so that you could self distribute in Montgomery County. Um, the same way you self-distribute in any other jurisdiction okay. in Maryland. So you just bypass the Department of Liquor Control. And that's true for any brewery. So now in Montgomery County, consumers have really won because there are so many more options of local beer that you can get, whether it's on tap or in package stores throughout all of Montgomery County, which did not exist when brewers had to sell to their distributors and then have their distributors sell to the Department of Liquor Control. Breweries just didn't want to get into that, yeah. right? Because you're losing so many margins. The price at the end was so expensive; it just didn't make any sense to be involved. And now, tons of breweries are selling into Montgomery County. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I'm. St- I don't. I still find everything <laughs> down there to be confusing. <laughs> it can be confusing. I'll stay up here in Frederick. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, all right. So the, the what? What's the other big? Self-distribution? Yeah. There, well, or sell- taproom sales? Taproom sales, self-distribution. There was a, there's Production? A, um, oh, I guess hours of operation, I assume. I think, think that the... Listen, I mean, my opinion on this, and this might be a little different from um, BAM. I'm speaking in my own individual capacity right now. Yeah. I think it makes sense for the local jurisdiction to decide what the hours are. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's your town, that's your municipality... Um, they have rules and they, 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 you know, the folks want the, the town to be the way that it is. So let them decide what the hours of operation are. And that means if a bar or restaurant or a brewery tap room can be open until two o'clock in the morning, so be it. There shouldn't be some restriction on brewery tap rooms just by the mere fact that they're breweries. Then there's all, uh, why do I, I, why can I not remember all the bullet points of what were being debated? There was a lot of things being debated. You know, one yeah. bill that I thought was really which I thought really sucked that they didn't pass um, was, you know, creating a marketing fund specifically for oh, Maryland yeah, beer, which, which I don't even know if it to went to debate or anything. I think it just got shut down. Yeah, that which, one just the, died on the vine. I and the guess. part that really sucks about that is they already have one for wineries. It's like create parity for the breweries. I'm not sure if they have them for spirits for uh, – our distilleries are not probably but not. That's such a new industry. They're even I know lagging further behind than what breweries. Yeah, have. no, they are, they are definitely. Uh, it's a pretty small industry in the state, but it, um, it's, and it's kind of sad that we're saying because they're newer, like that that they automatically are handicapped so much by what they can do. Like yeah, you can. Wineries have been around long, so they've been able to beat down the legislature sure. enough to allow them to operate. And breweries have been around long enough to get some things that they they need, but not everything. Some things. (laughs) Yeah, no, there's actually some really, really good distilleries in this state. I would highly recommend people buying their their spirits, for sure. I I would, too. Uh, Last weekend, we had the Frederick Craft Spirits Festival. Nice. Um, How'd that go? It went really well. Everyone was happy. Uh, I'm which, sure that they were. Which is what happens when you give samples of right. spirits out to everyone. Exactly. Um, and they're they're having another one. The The Stiller's Guild is having another one in Baltimore. I don't remember cool. the date, but it's coming up soon. That's great. Where it's the same type of thing. Your ticket, you get in, you get to try right. different things from everyone, and then you can purchase bottles from them. Nice. I actually, Graham and I went and made some single malt whiskey at oh, yeah? McClintock on Wednesday. That's pretty cool. It was hop-infused. Oh, wow. Vapor-infused. Okay. So far, it tastes great. All but right. everyone could look for that in one and a half to two years. All right, perfect. <laughs> so that's the... <laughs> if we remember. Yeah. Right. And if Uncapped's still around by then, it, <laughs> right. it will have the name of Uncapped or whatever. Well, is ho- hopefully Uncapped is still around. <laughs> I, just, I don't want to plan that far ahead. Um, but it, so it's, it's kind of, um, you know, 
when you brew a beer, mm-hmm. you're excited to try it. Mm-hmm. And even that three or so weeks feels yep. like forever. It's true. Um, so like when I made the mic'd up mango with Monaca seed, mm-hmm. it's like I couldn't wait to try right. it. Right. And now I keep thinking it was like, oh, one and a half years. <laughs> Although at least, I mean, we get to try it along the way and it tasted great coming right, right off the still. But right. knowing what that barrel will do to it, it's, it's an exciting thing, but it's still much more of a long game than definitely much more of a long game. World. I remember when I was home brewing um, and I would, I would have the bottle cause I didn't have the keg set up and that was even worse. Cause you'd bottle, you have to wait like six weeks yeah. before you could try it. That was horrible. Um, I, it's, it's nice to, <laughs> to be a co-owner of a, an actual professional brewery. Yeah. You have a lot more access to beer. It yeah, just goes straight to yeah. pour some off the tank right. every once in a while. Exactly. All right. So, um, you're running as a Democrat. I am running as a Democrat. Um, so Julie Verratti and Alec Ross. Yep. Um, if you love craft beer, that is one topic you definitely have in common with their ticket. Yep. Um, you can, how should everyone find out about all of the things that you have All the things on? they're doing. We have a website that combines our last names, but Alec's name is a lot easier to spell. So <laughs> I'm just going to give the website for that. It's alecross.com. And it's Alec with a C as in cat, not – It's a lot of people call him Alex. Yeah. His name is actually Alec. So alecross.com. You can see – you can read more about my bio. You can read about Alec's bio. You can also read about all the issues that we care about. We have a lot of policy positions on things with very specific examples of what we want to do uh, to move the state forward. It's not a bunch of platitudes. That that was one thing I did notice about him that I really mm-hmm. liked is it. it's not the typical, like, I just want to do this. Right. There's a lot of, I want to do this, and, and this, this is, is how. how. And that, these are my, you know, five bullet points as to how I'm going to yeah. do it this way, and here's my five bullet points as to how I'm going to do it this way. And it's actual real policy positions. And it's one of the things that really attracted me to him uh, when I first met him. Uh, is that he, again, he's very bright, you know, and I, you know, I will also, I don't know if he talked about the book that he wrote last week or not, but he wrote a book called The Industries of the Future, and I recommend whether you're going to vote for us or not, although I hope you do vote for us, um, that you read this book. It is absolutely eye-opening and incredible. You know, he got to travel the world when he worked for the State Department, uh, where he worked as the Senior Innovation Advisor to Secretary Hillary Clinton, and he wrote a book about all the experiences and the things he learned around the world from that. Uh, and it's basically focusing on these are the industries and the economies of the future, and these are the things we need to be teaching our kids so they're successful not just next year but 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now to really help our society succeed. Um, and so a lot, of, a lot of what he learned we're going to be implementing um, in our administration, assuming we get elected and we win. Would you suggest reading that book while enjoying a beer from Denizens? I would, but there are some chapters that are pretty complicated, so you uh, you might have to reread the chapter if you're <laughs> drinking. I had to do that a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so and where should people go to keep up with... Um, Denizens? Yeah. Uh, so our website is denizensbrewingco.com. You can follow us on Twitter, which is just at denizensbrewing. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, which is at Julie Verratti, if you want to see what we're up to in the campaign. Um, and I hope that I get to meet you guys and uh, have a beer with you. Awesome. Um, thank you for spending some of your extremely busy schedule. That was my pleasure, today. man. This is the fun stuff. And uh, we're going to be able to wrap up before Graham starts yelling at us. Poor uh, Graham. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Thank you. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.